So today we're going to look at James chapter 1 and verse 12 through 18. And if you've been here the last two weeks, uh, you're probably wondering, well, what in the world happened to verses 9 through 11? Well, as we work our way through James, we're going to do so thematically. James, if you, if you take time to read it, if you've been reading it over these last few weeks, he, he seems to come back to the same ideas over and over again. And so there's about five sections where he discusses trials and sufferings. There are a couple sections where he discusses money. There's some discussion on wisdom and on the tongue. And so we're going we're gonna to tackle James in thematic units. And so today will be the third time we deal with the subject of trials. But as we come in to 12 through 18, we see that James is, is drawing a dividing line, and he gives us some good theology. He gives us what it is to have a good and proper understanding of who God is. And the understanding in that is that as our knowledge, as our understanding of who God is, is perfected, is corrected, then we're able to rightly understand what is temptation, we're able to rightly understand what are trials that we encounter, and we're able to respond to them appropriately. Because if we don't have a good understanding of who God is, in some sense, we don't have a compass when we come into these situations. In some sense, we don't have any type of roadmap for encountering them. Man, we're just lost, we're just tossed here and there. So as we engage this text, look out for the ways that James is instructing us in the character of God and how that prompts us to response in the midst of trials and in the midst of temptations. Let me read for us James 1, 12 through 18. James writes, and he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, and the desire, when it has been conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he has brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. As James opens this up, he, he has this phrase, and this sounds a lot like what we read in verse 2. He says, blessed is the man who endures steadfast under trial. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And that should kick in our minds. We're back to verse 2. You remember James wrote, he said, count it all what? Count it all joy. Yeah, that's right. He said, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials of many kinds. And here he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And so we read that, and we see that it's important. James is coming back to it, but it's all dependent upon how we interpret, how we define blessed. So we read this passage, and we say, okay, well, James is trying to tell me that I should be happy when I encounter these various trials. I mean, I should be happy. It should conjure in me some type of happiness. Then when I'm going through life, and all these things happen, and Man, my marital relationship's just not great, and my boss is just, well, let's not, let's not talk about my boss right now, okay? Don't get me started on him. 
And then we start talking about my, my car that just won't ever start in the morning. Man, I've replaced that battery three or four times, and that mechanic, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's stealing money from me. I haven't figured out how, but as soon as I do, Better Business Bureau, hey, uh, mechanic down the road, he's stealing from me. Call him. And so we encounter all these things, and when we come beside them, if we've defined blessed as happy, then we're unhappy in the midst of those things. Our happiness is, is, is just robbed from us. Our happiness is just stripped right from our hands. But when we understand blessed as how God views us, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trials, this person who, who God looks down on, this person who God has set aside unto holiness, this person who God has looked at you and declared you to be blessed because you have the anointing of the king, because you have salvation in the name of his son, then when that is our understanding for what it is to be blessed, then when our marital relationship is on the rocks, when our kids disobey, when our car breaks down, when our boss <laughs> is the jerk that we all know him to be, it doesn't affect our understanding of what it is to be blessed. James writes, and he says, blessed is the one who remains steadfast. You see, God has already declared that we are blessed, that we are holy, that we are set aside, and then James goes on to describe it, and he says, for this person will receive the crown of life that God gives to all who love him. Now, when James writes this, there's this understanding in the Roman days that if you won a race or you did something well, you could get a wreath. They would take some greenery, they would form it into a crown, and they would place it on your head. And everybody would see it and be like, oh man, this guy's got a crown. He, he did something meritorious. He did something good. He is the fastest person in the race. He was the strongest person in the contest. He did something good. But it wouldn't take very long for this crown to begin to fade, for this crown to begin to decay. And then nobody remembers what this person did. All they know him is the guy who wears around the brown crown. Right? Nobody wants to be the wearer of the brown crown. But when James writes to them and he says, this person receives the crown of life that God bestows on all who love him. James is making a relation back to eternal life. He's making a relation back to eternal life. That God gives this good gift, this crown of life. And it's this idea that salvation isn't just something we're waiting on. It's not just something we're looking forward to in the future, that God is going to usher us into heaven, that God is going to give us a new body and a new flesh, but that salvation is something that we have today that radically affects the way that we engage and that we face trials. Do you understand the weight of that? That in some sense, we already have this crown of life, and yet we are still looking forward to it. We are remaining steadfast under trials, not because God has this carrot that he's dangling out there in front of us and says, hey, look, check it out. If you do a really good job, if you can remain steadfast, you get eternal life. But no, that we have eternal life in the here and now. That when God radically saved us, when he stepped into the midst of our sinfulness, that when he stepped into the midst of our selfishness, and he gave us salvation, that from that moment into eternity, eternal life is ours. And we have it through his son. Now, what we've got to be careful to observe here is that, that 12 
is completely separate from 13, 14, and 15. There's, there's a change in subject that we have to recognize as we go into 13, 14, and 15. 12 deals with the subject and the idea of trials, of external pressures. So our car breaking down, our marital relationship, all these things. Things outside of us, things outside of our control. But as we come into 13 through 15, James begins to discuss temptation. Man, and temptation is, is inside of us, as we're going to see in the text. Temptation is an internal pressure to react negatively. Temptation is something that we all respond to differently. And we all have individual triggers. And if we were to make a list of all our individual temptations, we would see some overlap, but we would be shocked to see the things that some of us are tempted by, that others of us would look at and say, man, that, that's not a temptation for me. For some of us, temptation is food. For some of us, temptation is candy. For some of us, temptation, I mean, it could be anything. You could be really sick and twisted, and candy corn is your temptation. I, we'd, we would pray for you on Wednesday night because nobody should be tempted by candy corn. But really, it could be anything that could tempt you. But James says, men, you have to understand temptation appropriately. So he writes in verse 13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. James says, hey, look, when you experience temptation, when you feel temptation coming on, don't blame it on God. You see, there's this, this idea that, that we want to blame something on someone, right? We don't want to take responsibility of, for our own actions, and in this case, for our own temptations. So we get in the middle of temptations, and we say, man, I really wish this temptation would stop. And so James is addressing those in the midst of this that would say, it's God. God is the one tempting me. James goes on, he says, let no one say that. Don't say that God is the one tempting you, for God, can tempt, God is not tempted, and God can tempt no one towards evil. But see, there are those of us as well that, that we get in the midst of temptations, and we want to say, well, it's, it's, it's the devil tempting me. But you see what the text points to. Isn't to the devil outside, but in some in some way or form it's the devil inside it's our own proclivity towards evil it's our own bent on pursuing the desires of flesh james isn't giving people an out but james is nailing them to the wall and saying don't blame it on god it is inside you that's where this temptation comes from it says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And then James gives us two metaphors in 14 and 15. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Man, that had to be pretty shocking for the readers of this to see. Well, James, can you at least give us a little bit of an out? I mean, when they receive this word from James, and he says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. James is using a metaphor from fishing. Now, admittedly, I am not a fisherman. My idea of fishing was uh, over Thanksgiving over at my parents' house. They've got a stock tank, 
and we go out and we put dog food on the end of a hook and we throw it in there and we're wheeling, you know, we're, we're, we're reeling in these fish. This is intense fishing for me at this point. Because the fish is going to come out, I've got to take him off the hook and all this type of stuff, throw him back in there so someone else can catch him. I'm not even going to get to eat the thing. But those that are really into fishing have told me that, that when you're fishing, you know, you pick your bait, depending obviously on, you know, what type of fish you're going for. You pick your bait according to maybe the weather conditions, you know, all these variables that you're looking at. It's almost like you need a book that says, okay, uh, slightly cloudy chance of rain, can't use those, this type of fish. Oh, i got to go to Walmart. Maybe I just changed fish. Nope, still got to go to Walmart. Dang it. And so there's this idea that, that we use specific bait for specific fish. And man, when we're going along and we see these things in our life that are dangling there in front of us, and we're so attracted to it, and we're so drawn in, that we reach out and we grab a hold of it. The way James writes this in the text. He says we're lured and enticed. That we see something that we want and we reach out and we grab for it. And as we grab onto it, we begin to be pulled away by this temptation. Now C.S. Lewis is on to something. C.S. Lewis in his book, uh, wrote a, in his book, uh, Wow, I'm really blanking on the title here. It's a great book. It's very short. You should all read it. The Screwtape Letters. There we go. He's dialoguing. He has this dialogue between these two demons back and forth, and, and they're trying to figure out how best to trip people up. And he says, never take something that's just outright sin, but take something good and just twist it a little bit. And so if, if you want a husband to cheat on his wife, don't just tell him, hey, go cheat on your wife, but but bring to mind those areas that his wife is failing him. She doesn't applaud his efforts enough. She doesn't talk about how good of a provider he is enough. And then help him find somebody to meet that need. Help him find somebody that says, man, you're such a hard worker. I bet your wife is so happy. And then remind him that his wife never applauds him on that. You see, the great accomplishment of the enemy is not to take something that's just all, all sinful and get us to buy into that, but it's to take something good and to twist it just so. And so for some of us, it's business. Man, I want to succeed. I want to do well so I can provide for my family. Man, that is noble. That is good. Or man, I want to have a, a perfect family so that... So that People see that my children are well-behaved. They see that I honor my husband. Or I just I want to do really well in athletics, or I want to do really well in education because I want to get smarter. I want to, I want to be able to pass on my learning to other people. But see, those things twist. Those things get distorted. Suddenly we've taken good things and we've made them, as Tim Keller says, the ultimate thing. We've quit worshiping God and we've started worshiping our pursuits Suddenly, we're no longer satisfied with 40, 45, 50 hours a week. We're doing 60, we're doing 70, we're doing 80 hours a week. Chasing an elusive dream that can never be accomplished. All because at one time we had the, the noble pursuit that we wanted to provide for our family. But now we're doing nothing but chasing temptation. We've been ensnared by it. 
Others of us want to have the model family. And so we're raising up our family, we're instructing our children in all righteousness. But then we, you know, we quit doing things, we quit attending church, we quit doing things because, man, I've got to insulate this time with my family. And we're making a God of our families. We're building up our families and we're pouring so much into them that we've destroyed all other relationships because we've taken a good thing, caring for our families, and we've made them the ultimate thing. And we begin to worship them. That anytime our kids disobey or anytime somebody says something about our family, it wounds us to our innermost being because we have made them the object of our worship. For some of us, it's, it's, it's hoping that our kids will be the next you know, big thing. They're hoping that our kids will do well in baseball or do well in football so that they'll get a scholarship or do well in academics so they could get an academic scholarship. Because I tell you, when I look at what college is going to cost for our three-year-old and our eight-month-old, I'm, I'm praying the same thing. God, give him two awesome feet that could just, you know, drive a soccer ball from, from, from one goal to the next goal. God, give him the ability to swing a bat both ways and, you know, pitch better with his left hand than he can his right hand. God, help him to be so smart that his brain is just forcing pressure on his skull because he's just doing quantum physics in kindergarten. I don't even know what that is. It sounds smart. But that we go from a good thing, wanting to raise our kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and we make it an ultimate thing. And we grabbed a hold of this lure, this thing that looks so attractive, and it has pulled us into sin. And then in verse 15, James gives us the life cycle. He says in verse 15, he says, when desire, then, then desire, when it is conceived, so when it comes into being, it gives birth to what? Man, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's grown to full maturity, leads to death. You see, temptation is something that, that keeps us longer than we ever wanted to be there, and it always leads to death. You see, when we follow our desires, or chasing our desires devoid of God's direction leads to death. Chasing the things that we want to do, those paths that we think are best for our lives, devoid of the direction of God, leads to death. There's no other destination for it. And James gives us clear indication that we're headed down the wrong path whenever we take a good thing and we make it an ultimate thing. But we see a hinge here in verse 16. It almost seems kind of out of place, which if, if you read James very much, there seems a lot of verses that seem just kind of out of place. It almost like it interrupts the flow of the argument. Because in verse 16, James writes, he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. So he's no longer talking about temptation specifically, and he's not talking about what follows it. He's not talking about theology, about the goodness of God. So James is offering a commentary. He says, look, in, in our language today, we might say, hey, look, hear me on this, or make sure you follow my argument on this, or pay careful attention to what I have said before, and, and notice that I'm about to change something for you. He says, don't be deceived. See, James realizes the importance that people draw, that you and I draw, a heavy distinction between trials 
those things that if we respond appropriately, appropriately to them, they lead to the crown of life. That we remain steadfast underneath them, that we're able to declare it joy because we have set our minds on the things of God, not the things of men, in temptation. That there's a marked difference between trials and temptation. That's why James interjects this in the middle of here. and says, man, don't deceive yourselves. Don't be misled. Don't buy into a faulty understanding of who God is and what your response should be to Him. And then in verses 17 through 18, James gives us a beautiful picture of God. He gives us a great snapshot of who God is. He says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He has brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. It's interesting that this group James wrote to, that James had to offer the corrective and said, don't anyone say in the midst of temptation that God is tempting you. And in verse 12, he said that God is the one who gives the crown of life, that God is the one who gives that to those who love him. And then here in verse 17, he says that every good and perfect gift is coming from above. And the way that James writes this, the language he's using, he's not talking about just receiving one gift. He's not making a reference just to the single time when we receive salvation, but he sees a steady string of gift giving. You know, with, with Christmas right around the corner, many of us are thinking about gifts, and if you're, especially if you're younger, you're thinking about all the things you're going to get. If you ask my three-year-old what he's going to get, he says, I'm going to get a dune racer. He saw a commercial like three months ago, and he's locked onto it. Apparently, that's what he's getting. And that's a good gift, right? I mean, it's a decent gift. If you're a three-year-old, it's a great gift. But it's not a perfect gift. And that thing's going to get old, the battery's going to quit charging, it's going to break apart, and he's going to get really frustrated at some point when he's 75 pounds and he can no longer ride on it. But James gives us a different picture here. He says God is the giver of gifts eternally. That they come from above, that they come from the Father, and he goes on and he talks about who God is. He says God is the Father of lights. You'll remember in Genesis 1, in verses 14 through 18, that God speaks into the expanse, and he said what? He said, let there be light. And he created the sun, and he created the moon, and he hung the stars in their place. God spoke, and light happened. And what did God say when he had done these things? What did God say when he had put the stars in the sky? What did God say when he had hung the sun in its place? His commentary on that was, it's good. You see, God's goodness and God's gift-giving is in direct proportion to His character. Just as He spoke majestically into the expanse, just as He spoke powerfully into the expanse, He too speaks into our lives and extends to us good and perfect gifts. To tell you the difficult thing for this is that for some of us, the best gift He can give is a trial. 
for some of us, the best thing he can give us is the endurance to overcome a difficulty. When all we want is victory, we fail to see God working in the midst of our defeat. When all we want is to overcome, we fail to see God giving the good gift that is the struggle. So we totally miss it. Because our, our bend is always to say, God, make this stop. Instead of saying, God, teach me in the midst of this. You see, God is the father of lights. And, and God is radically different. James offers commentary on this. He says, God is radically different than any concept of light that, that we see. Just as the lights from the balcony hit me and they cast my shadow behind me, the light James is referring to has no shadow. It penetrates all shadow. It penetrates all darkness. And so it, it, it leaves no place for shadows to reside. And in verse 18, he says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. In Ephesians 1.13, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, speaking of Jesus, and he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Paul lets us know, and, and we can see elsewhere, that this word of truth is the gospel. That God went to work in our lives, and by his will, by his doing through the agency of the gospel that he chose to use the good news of Jesus crucified and risen to bring sinners to glory. He goes on, he says, so that he might present us as a type of first fruits. We see this in Exodus 23:19 that that Moses is giving the people the the instruction for what they should do with the first cutting, for what they should do with the, the best of their crops. And he says, set those aside because they are an offering to God. Now here James goes through and he says that God brought us forth by his own will and he set us aside to be a type of first fruits of his creatures. Friends, it's that God takes us through the power of the gospel, by his own will, he creates in us an offering unto himself. And it's not just that he says that's a, an acceptable offering or it's a decent offering, but it is a first fruits offering. It is the highest form. It is set aside solely to God. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, we read that Christ is the same type of offering. That just as we have believed in Christ and in his sacrifice, we too are transformed. We too become this type of offering. I mean, we've been set aside to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. And that as we understand who God is, as we have a proper understanding of the character and the nature of God, we're able to endure trials, and we're able to endure temptations. Friends, as we sit here with our, with our hearts still attuned to this text, we approach three questions. What trial in your life are you refusing to see God's blessing in? 
What trial in your life are you refusing to see God's blessing in? What good things in your life are you tempted into making an ultimate thing? Or have you already made an ultimate thing of? You see, there are good things that God gives us. And the temptation is to make those an ultimate thing. So what good things in your life have you already made into an ultimate thing? Your spouse, your children, your job. And the text tells us that God is the type of God that gives good gifts, that God is the type of God that eternally gives perfect gifts. And in light of this, in light of what it says about God's character, how should you respond to God? How do you respond to Him when things are good, and how do you respond to God when things, as you see them, are not good. Let me pray for us.